Hi, I'm Andrew. Welcome to the Review of Two Dyes Geoengineering podcast. I'm here today with Xavier Dupler, and we're going to be talking about enhanced rock weathering and its effect on the toxic mineral profile of soil. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Okay, so do you want to start off by giving us your paper title and uh, everything else we might need to explore, exploit, reproduce or cite your work and plagiarise it, obviously. I mean, some of our audience are probably quite into that. (laughs) So the, the paper is called Potential Accumulation of um, Toxic Trace Elements Due to Enhanced Rock Weathering. It's been published in the European Journal of Soil Science last week, I think. And Journal of what? Uh, yeah, it's it, it, Soil Science. Journal of Soil Science, right, okay. That's a logical place to publish it, I suppose. Uh, and yes. um, so it's, uh, it's available for all the world to see at the moment. Yes, it's in open access. Yeah. Okay, great. So. If you want to tell me a bit about your background and institution, because you are you look like you're quite early in your career. You don't have a grey beard and a wrinkly lined face from doing lots of stupid students who won't listen to what you say. So I'm assuming that you haven't been doing this for an enormous amount of time. So it'd be great to background as to how you ended up where you are at the moment. Sure, sure. So I, I'm an agronomist by training and what is studying. an agronomist? I mean, I've got a fair idea, but I, you know, I wouldn't swear to my knowledge on agronomists. Yeah, fair enough. I guess it's the science be- behind, you know, everything that relates to agriculture. So, either, I guess, an agronomist. It's it's a broad concept going from. You're like a you clever know, farmer, right? If only. No, the farmers are definitely the the most clever. Okay. But uh, but I. We, we study we study what farmers do we study how how we can improve farming in terms of uh, breeding of of you know in terms of yeah yeah pretty much everything that relates to to farming that's the science behind farming you're trying to breed better farmers you are far <laughs> like a farmer breeding program okay? yeah that's Sounds right. good. that's a that's a secret aspect that okay. about. you got a, se- a secret farmer breeding program excellent um, <laughs> So, what institution are you at? Yeah, I'm working in Lausanne University in Switzerland. Uh, okay, in that's, in, mid- that's, in a Fr- that's in a French bit of Switzerland, isn't it? That's right, yeah, exactly. I've been to Switzerland several times. It's a strange country because you like you go at different ends of the country and you're obviously in a different country, but everyone denies this fact. It's like, no, it's not France, it's Switzerland. And it's like, it's obviously France. And then you go at the other end of the country and it's obviously Germany. And everyone denies that it's Germany. It's just a straight, they're like, the cars change, the language change, the culture changes, the, you know, the, how, the amount of rubbish on the street changes, what people wear changes. Like, no, definitely not Germany. It's definitely Switzerland. Okay, then. Yeah. Right. So you, you're actually Azam, but obviously, I would imagine you spend a lot of time running around in fields doing farmery type things as a result of what you're studying. So do you spend most of your time, like, flying around Europe or your farm's quite close to you or um, as you said I'm a, I'm a, I'm a young scientist I've only published three papers and the first two were on organic matter accumulation in soils connected to farming practices and uh, for these studies I worked on I only studied practices in Switzerland are they yeah, like so physically that's... close to your university or do you have to no, go no. deep into the jungles of Switzerland uh, I... Yeah, that was um, on-farm studies. So I went uh, and visited 120 different farms in Switzerland. Okay, that sounds quite arduous. Right, well, um, I've got an idea of how you're working. So um, give, give me a 
potted summary of enhanced weathering because it's it's quite a, an interesting and varied subject. So, what are you weathering yeah. and where are you putting it to weather? So, so yeah, I mean, I guess the people listening to your to your podcast are familiar with with the concept, or I mean, are more familiar than than most of well, us. Some uh, some of them humanity students. I just assume that okay, they're all idiots, right. and then then the human humanity students won't be too um, bewildered by your explanations. Okay, okay, right. So, so basically, the idea is to is to enhance or to accelerate the natural process that has been regulating the climate for you know over geological uh, times the idea is that silicates which are minerals and 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 most I'd say more, more than 90% of minerals on earth are silicates when they weather they so what what we when we mean weathering what we actually mean is when they dissolve in the solution so it could be the ocean or it could be you know the soil solution or it could be river but anyway when these minerals dissolve in solution they end up sequestering absorbing consuming co2 and as such they've been regulating the climate how did they how did they did so well basically the more let's say let's say we are in a very over geological time scales let's say we are in a very hot and humid climate well in in such a climate the, the rainfall would be frequent and intense and because the, the hydrological we, cycle is energy driven and therefore you need the heat in the climate to drive the hydrological cycle right yeah, so it's an exactly. energy dependent and, process definitely and in such an intense cycle you would end up dissolving more silicate minerals because you have more water coming on coming in contact with these minerals so a hot a hot and humid climate leads to more silicate weathering, which leads in turn to more CO2 being sequestered, which lowers the atmospheric concentration of CO2. Therefore, you know, pulling pulling the, the overall temperature down. And then so it works a little bit like the central heating thermostat in your house, right? So when you well, uh, I mean it couldn't be you couldn't have a better comparison because the enhanced weathering is called the Earth thermostat. So so over a geological time time scale, this has this a process has worked as as a thermostat, as you said. The aim of your research is to make sure that you can get the carbon out of the atmosphere using this approach without going through the bit where we all have alligators at the North Pole and hippos in the Thames, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I guess that was the reason behind you know this 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 new field called enhanced rock weathering. The idea was to see if we could accelerate this process that works of a geological timescale, and accelerating it meant grinding the rock to in, to increase the specific surface of the rock and therefore increase the dissolution reaction. So my understanding yeah. is you need four things to make enhanced rock weathering work, right? Or five if you count the rock itself. So you need surface area, you need yeah. aeration, you need water, and you need temperature. So you want yeah. it to be hot, airy, wet, and finely ground or as finely ground as you can get it without getting rid of all the porosity so it turns into like a soapy sort of clay that no air can get in right that's the sort of basic the basic thrust of it one thing i i I guess i guess we could also add the most reactive minerals because not all silicates weather at the same speed so yeah so like quartz is like super resistant to weathering isn't that's right and then you've got other so we we have a couple of other people on this podcast that have covered um different types of minerals and how they're right. used. I can't remember the notes. It might have been um, Barath that covered 
quartzes in her podcast, but it might have been somebody else. So apologies to people who are trying to find that. You're just going to have to wade through a couple of episodes if you want to catch that. Because I'm way too lazy to go and listen to them back before recording this episode. So um, you'll have to do your own navigation through our back catalogue. But there's loads of it to keep you amused. So please feel free to keep yourself off the streets and out of trouble by listening to the hundred or so episodes of Review 2 that we've got for your delightful listening pleasure. Um, the the other thing, we've had somebody on talking about carbonate weathering, and I'm personally of the opinion that carbonate weathering is a bit sort of voodoo. It's not quite the uh, legitimate religion. And one of the problems with carbonate weathering is the carbonate, when they get into the ocean, um, has some pretty compli- complicated effects. And um, there is at least one of the people that we've had on the podcast who has argued that in some or all circumstances, I can't remember which, carbonate weathering basically doesn't work at all because it has downstream effects on the ocean. So you've mentioned here that your weathering program is um, based on silicate rock weathering. Do you have opinions on carbonate? I mean, is it, do, you, do you just have a lot of silicates to play with or is it a case of, that you've specifically chosen not to do carbonate weathering because you don't like carbonates? Were they rude to your mum at one point or something like that? Or how does it have you made your choice to use silicates and not carbonates? So I don't have any personal feelings against carbonate. It was, the, it was the most logical thing to choose. It was not my, my decision. Why was it logical? Basically, because we need, we need to speak a bit about chemistry here. So all the people you know, from humanities, please stay with us. It's not going to be that complicated. When we dissolve one mole of silicate, we end up consuming two moles of CO2, right? And if, if this sequestered CO2 ends up by precipitating as carbonate minerals, the precipitation reaction will release one mole of CO2, okay? So we sequester two moles of CO2 when we dissolve the silicate, and in the worst conditions, we can release one mole of CO2, meaning that even in the worst conditions, silicate weathering is still a positive net reaction to sequester CO2, right? At worst, we end... Whereas a carbonate weathering, it just goes back to what it was before, which is a carbonate and you've lost all the benefit, right? Exactly, exactly. Okay, so just to to cover this point off again, because every time this comes up, it goes, I I have to go on to this, because almost everybody misunderstands this. So you've got, everyone thinks that carbon dioxide in the atmosphere ends up in carbonates in the ocean, but that's wrong, isn't it? Or at least it's wrong on any kind of meaningful timescale that factors into yeah. human decision-making. So if you've got the White Cliffs hmm. of Dover, for example, they're made of chalk, and that chalk is made of carbon, and that carbon was once in the atmosphere at some point. But yeah. you could essentially weather out that chalk, and it would dissolve more carbon into bicarbonate, because the carbon dioxide would react and form bicarbonate rather than carbonate, and so you, you'd weather it out. But no, no, despite that, there's no doubt that those rocks were at once atmospheric carbon. So... I, I really struggle with the transfer of between the long and short dissolved organic inorganic carbon cycles. So um, I appreciate this isn't the subject of your paper, but as you okay. about ten people have tried to explain this to me before, and everyone has failed. I'm sure it's not just the humanities graduates that are going to struggle with this concept. So if you can talk to us about the short and long term dissolved or inorganic carbon cycle in the ocean, I'm sure you'd be doing the Lord's work. Well. To be honest, I struggle to understand what you don't understand because you seem to explain it so well. What, I, what, can, I, what can I say on top of what you've said? Well, basically, if we, if we go back to the, long, to the long carbon cycle, the long carbon cycle 
starts, as I explained, by the weathering of silicate minerals, right? The weathering of silicate minerals consumes CO2 and transfers it into the form of bicarbonates, right? Which is HCO3 minus, so an anion dissolves in the solution, right? Until there, the CO2 from the atmosphere has been dissolving in the water and then trans transforming into HCO3 minus, a bicarbonate anion. Okay, this is the beginning of the long carbon cycle. This bicarbonate anion, as a, as a remaining time in the ocean, which nowadays is, is understood to be between 10,000 and 100,000 years, right? So we estimate that, we, that this anion, bicarbonate anion, remains in the ocean as such between 10,000 and 100,000 years before it's being used by microorganisms to create you know, their carbonate skeleton. And therefore, it goes from bicarbonate to, to a carbonate mineral, right? And then it precipitates at the bottom of the ocean and through the tectonic phases, you know, it's buried, being melted, and then the CO2 that was captured there, like the CO2 that forms, you know, the choke from your cliff or, yeah, pretty much anything, goes back in the atmosphere through the volcanoes. Like, we're, we're so talking you, millions it, It's of like a giant cement kiln, right? So you're basically calcining the rocks in the deep earth because it's so very hot. And yeah. then that those rocks will... Um, release CO2 via volcanoes. So what I think you're explaining here is that the best way to think about the long carbon cycle is it, it makes sense when it's coupled to the silicate weathering cycle. So you get yeah. your silicate weathering, it takes down two CO2s for every silicate that's weathered. It turns it into bicarbonate. Then you get one of your CO2s back when it turns into the carbonate, but that CO2 that's released can then re-weather more silicate in the long term. And so eventually what you have is this slow trend from fresh silicates and carbon dioxide to carbonate rocks and that will that, that happens in a kind of one step two steps forward one step back type process but the end result of that is your um is that the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere will ultimately end up in carbonate rocks but only the long that only makes sense in the long term carbon cycle because in the short term carbon cycle carbonates will uh, will absorb co2 and but making carbonates will release co2 and it only makes sense to make carbonates in the very long term when you're coupling it with the silicate weathering cycle is that correct that's correct and uh, excellent and, and, finally i understand this like i've had this seriously yeah. i've had that explained to me probably 10 times for various different people you're the first person who's actually made me understand the transition between the long and short term cycles well, on in ocean inorganic chemistry so you can have a that, gold star that, that's amazing and I, I would just add one thing you know going in your sense which is another name from the long term carbon cycle is called the silicate carbonate pump and i guess now you understand why right okay well there you go that's great go. i'll delete all of the other episodes that we've ever done on enhanced weathering we'll just put this one up because all of the others have served only to confuse me so in fact, you can have two gold stars. I'm very happy. Right. Well, anyway, thank you for relieving me of the nonsense that was crowding my head. You now uh, want us to go and talk about your paper, which is about various toxic stuff that comes out of minerals when you weather them. That's fundamentally the issue that you're dealing with, right? That's right. Yeah. Okay. So my understanding of it is that silicate minerals have a nasty habit of being infested with chromium and nickel ions which don't sound altogether that horrible but 
my guess is that too much of a good thing can be wonderful, according to Mae West, which is one of my favourite quotes, but not necessarily always wonderful. And uh, there comes a point where your soil gets a bit nickeled out or chromiumed out, and you either can't grow anything on it or you're not allowed to grow anything on it because there's a only... A, I think my vitamin pills have got chromium in them, but I think there comes a point where having too much chromium makes you grow an extra head or something. Is that right? No, no. Yeah, no, no, you're right. I mean, most most of the elements are actually uh, essential, you know, micronutrients. It's it's always a problem of you know of, of those. I would I would just want to correct like whiskey you. after the second bottle, it just serves no purpose, right? <laughs> That's right. That's right. I would just maybe correct one point, which is that you said that silicates tend to have you know nasty nasty heavy metals in them, like nickel and chromiums. Well, the thing is, not all of them actually have heavy metals in them or problematic metals for us. The problem is that the most reactive minerals tend to be heavily polluted in nickel and chromium. And this is, is the problem because... fundamental reason why that happens? Or is that just random luck? Is there like some uh, geochemistry reason why God has decided to spoil all these otherwise useful minerals by stuffing them up with loads of toxic stuff? So, so the, the most... The fastest mineral in silicate minerals to, to dissolve is, is, is a mineral part of the olivine family, right? And olivine... Is that forstenite? Is that right? That's, well, that's right. That's, that's, that's one type. That's one type of olivine. There, there, are, there, there are several others. And there's wollastonite is another one, right? Wollastonite? No, no. Wollastonite is not, is, not is not an olivine mineral. It's a, when you say... Basically, I'm convinced. I'm always convinced that mineralogists just make up mineralogy on the fly, just to play with everyone's heads and make them think that it's real. Like you're, it's like the kind of version of the Santa Claus story for little kids, right? So, you're saying that there's different classes of olivine. So that this is the first time I've heard that olivine's like a class of minerals, as opposed to minerals. Yeah, it's a family. Yeah, yeah, it's a family of okay. minerals. Okay. So, olivine, what, yeah. what's in the family, and how does it, and how, what, what even is a family in geology? I mean, I know what a family so, is in terms of biology because. You know, yeah. there's a degree of direct relatedness, but that's not quite the same in, in geology, is it? It's not it, It's not a directly equivalent concept because rocks don't mate with other rocks and have babies, right? So, <laughs> so, so, uh, so, I mean, first of all, let, 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 let's start by saying that I am not a geologist, right? So, so I would say that if you invite a geologist, he will, he or she will give you a much better answer than I, than I will. But what I can tell you is that Olivine is a, is, is, a, is a family of minerals because, because the composition of, of olivine has different end members, right? So it can, be, it can be, you basically have a different proportion of potassium and magnesium in the mineral. And depending on the proportion of, of each, you will go through one end member or another. And that's why it's, it's called a family because you, you can have a range of different minerals based on the proportion. Okay, so going from you know, one end to the other, if you can kind of, like if you can read out the olivine spectrum disorder, right from one end to the other, that would be helpful. By heart, no, by heart, I cannot tell you this. It's, it's I mean, well, it's yeah, classified, yeah. you state secrets, the composition of olivine. You, only, you have to be a proper sworn in geologist, so they'll I, tell you. I, I, that's right. I have to, I have to send you on Wikipedia and check the olivine family mineral to 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 tell you the the exact chemical composition of each you know member okay. of the family. I but don't if it's got, that, I'm sorry. Do you, do you know the end members that you were saying that when it's got lots of potassium, it's one thing, and it's got lots of something else, it's another thing. Yeah, that's right. So so you so you have you mentioned you mentioned uh, dunite, 
Dunite is, is, is one is one rock containing is, is one is one type of uh, olivine family. You have so it's done uh, so it's done like rock for a min it's done done like a rock or is it a mineral? Yeah, no, yeah. So so dunite is a rock made of one end member of the olivine family. But really, oh. I mean, for the oh. geology aspect, especially on this kind of mineral, this kind of rocks, which are called ultramafic rocks, I really have to to send you back to to the literature because. This is not my special. With the literature being Wikipedia, right? So Dunite's at one end it's of the a, scale. It's a good start. It's a good start. Okay. Is in most professions. Uh, I went to hospital once and the doctor was looking something up on Wikipedia while treating me, which is like, well, it's good enough for them. Probably YouTube good is good also for doctors. Yeah. Um, so Dunite's one end. And is that the, is the potassium end of the spectrum or is it the other end of the spectrum? Um I I don't want to say something stupid. So so That's all right. so really, I would, well, yeah, I mean, uh, frankly, if you, if you do ever want to say something stupid, then you know, come back on the podcast. It's the best place for scientists to say stupid things. Right. Okay. Good to know. So uh, okay, well, great. You've got this kind of olivine spectrum, and at one end is dunite, and at the other end is some other stuff that you've forgotten. But that's not that important. But basically, what you're saying is that the more weathery it is, the more polluted it is. But are we any clearer on? whether that's a fundamental property, that there's some specific reason why that happens, or is it just luck that the, the, the more polluted bits of the olivine spectrum tend to be the more yeah. fast-weathering bits? Uh, I, I guess it would have to be with the melting condition, you know, in the, in the magma. But, but, uh, but, yeah, to be honest, okay. so I, there... I, I, don't, I don't know exactly. I don't know exactly. Now, now, what I can tell you is that I started speaking about about olivine because um, you have ultramafic rocks, right, which are the fastest rocks to dissolve. And these rocks have a huge proportion of olivine minerals in them. And then okay. when you and go got along the of, scale... But have they got lots of the pollution in as well? Lots that's of right, the yeah, yeah. nickel and chromium yeah, have, in as well, have, right? That's okay. right. You're right, yeah. And so help me understand this. So is what you're saying is basically a linear trade-off so that if you want more weatheringness, you get exactly the same amount of pollutionness, or is it a case of they're non-linear and you're sort of trying to get as far down the reactive in the scale before you get the pollutionness kicking in? So you're trying to sort of like edge it right to the furthest extreme of the weathering ability without having stuff which will spit nickel all over your crops. Oh, you're raising a central point here. It is. It is. The speed, the weathering speeds depends on the fastest minerals to weather. And the fastest minerals to weather in silicate minerals tend to be, you know, minerals from the olivine family. Meaning that, as you, as you said, uh, the, more, the, the more olivine you'll have in your mineral, the faster it will dissolve, but the more heavy metals you will end up with. But is and that linear is, or a non-linear yeah, effect? Yeah, that's pretty important. Yeah, that, yeah that, that's a linear effect. And that's, that's the annoying aspect about it. Okay, so basically, it's fundamental. If you if you want your weathering effect, you kind of have to put up with the pollution, and that's just tough. That's just exactly. the way it's physical, chemistry exactly. works, right? That's okay. right. And you and what you want to do is you want to find the right balance between, you know, fast weathering, but also a limited impact in terms of pollution. Okay, and when you say that you've got different minerals in the rock, so you kind of crudely imagine that sort of salt and sugar were sort of bound up. So like in a flapjack, for example, you might have like bits that are buttery and bits that are oaty. And so you think about your flapjack and it's kind of like a whole rock, but then you've got like an oaty bit that's one mineral and then you've got a buttery bit that's another mineral. That's a kind of crude way of thinking about how a rock works. 
works, right? I mean, obviously, oats aren't one chemical, but, you know, if you think about the starch in the oats or the, you know, the lipids in the butter, then that would be... No, it's, a, it's actually a good metaphor because, because oats are not, a, not, are not an element, but uh, yeah. olivine is not an element. As you said, it's a, it's a mineral made up, made up of several key elements and some annoying elements like nickel and chromium. So, no, it's a good metaphor. Yeah, okay. So, you've got... The effect is when you're saying it's not just the elements, is it? But you've got you, a rock can have multiple phases, so you can have like crystals of this and that within a rock, right? Yeah, give it exactly. sort of spe- speckled appearance, and each crystal is mineralogically different. And what you're saying is that the silicate mineral series, you've got some crystals on that series that are more one thing, and some that are more the other thing. And um, th- inherently, as you have got more. Um, weathering ability from even parts of that rock, not the whole rock, just like the, the the particles within that rock, the different crystals within that rock. Each individual part of that will tend to be have have more do- doping from nickel and chromium that ultimately will cause you problems with your with your uh, pollution of the soil than than would be the case with the other parts of the same rock that got less reactivity and therefore less nickel and chromium, right? Yeah. Okay. Well, that's kind of like incredibly annoying, isn't it? Really, because it means that it, within any given rock, you're the bit that you want, the kind of the tasty bit of the rock that gives you the weathering you want, is inherently plagued with this horrible nickel um, and chromium pollution that is yeah basically just causing you hell, right? Yeah. I mean, it's it's annoying for 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 what we want to do with it, which is accelerate, you know, a geological process. You know, okay. over geological timescales, we don't care because, you know, all, pretty much all minerals will end up being weathered. Our problem is that we want the reaction to happen, you know, over years or decades. And therefore, um, yeah, it's annoying so, because, so, because the fact so basically you're like a desperate drunk downing the maths, despite the obvious health consequences that you could uh, wait until you've got some proper wine to drink but that would rely on waiting until the shop opens so you're in a tearing hurry and therefore the meths will have to do and sod the blindness we'll worry about that later right it's roughly where we're at in terms of climate change yeah so yeah. explain to me what's so horrible about nickel i mean everyone goes on about nickel and chromium like what happens if i was to you know, see in a field and eat lots of nickel with my nice oats or potatoes or whatever else it was that you were growing in the field. What would happen? Is it does it kill the plants or does it yeah you know, make the soil exactly. not work properly yeah. or does it or does it exactly. kill the people who eat the plants? It's uh, it's uh, it has a, what we call a phytotoxic effect, meaning meaning that it will end up preventing the prop you know the normal growth of plants and the normal root development, especially of plants. Ending up, uh, yeah, so pretty ph- much it. Ph- phytotoxic, right? Phy- phyto, yeah. Sorry, okay. Yeah, I, I thought phyto- you said phytotoxic. It was like I was imagining it was fetuses that were affected. It was like, okay, can we just have special phyto. fields of okay. non weathering rocks that we use for babies, and everyone else can eat the weather, weather, the weathered rocks? But that's not going to work, is it? So, right, okay. So, it causes plant toxicity, and does it does it harm people if I eat? food that's been grown on enhanced weathering fields with loads of nickel in it does it will it make me go green or will it not matter or what yeah you know that's a very good question and 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 actually that was one point that was raised by one reviewer in, in the journal he said you know there are you know there are countries 
which have been you know growing food on on volcanic rock and you know and therefore on soils developed on ro- on volcanic rocks throughout the world and if you know if this was a problem for our health we would know it so so is this really a question you know like is 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 pollution- it's not it's not it's more than that isn't it because it's not just that some people have volcanic soils and they're like hey ho we've got to grow on this stuff it's like people deliberately go to volcanoes because they have really fertile soils right yeah so yeah i mean that's why they that's why people and malleted throughout history people get getting malleted by volcanoes like you know that's why vesuvius killed so many people was because mm-hmm. the slopes of vesuvius or the alluvial fields that are around vesuvius that are full of this rock that's been weathered off the mountain were, were their fertile full because of nutrients. Of the, yeah exactly so i mean it seems to be i mean we've just not been a bit kind of scaredy cats about eating food with loads of nickel should we just be mainlining nickel and not care about it or what yeah well, th- yeah, that's that's what I wanted to say. Is it's th- this point that was read by, by the reviewer, you know, made me research into this because you know, I'm not a geologist, but I am also not an ecotoxicologist. So, the point well, you've of been saying not a geologist, but you seem to know a lot about geology. So, what exactly is it that you do if you're not a geologist? It's well, I'm a, I'm a soil scientist, I'm a geochemist, but I, I you know, I, I was not properly trained in geology, so therefore I don't want to call myself a geologist. Um, when I when I did some research about the impact, you know, of the soils developed on volcanic rocks and especially on volcanic rocks rich in olivine-rich minerals, I ended up look finding, you know, some very contrasted results. Some some reviews were mentioning impact on our health. And some others were saying that it was below the, you know, the, the detection potential. So, so I'd say that that's not that's not a solved issue. And I guess it's not a solved issue because because most of these heavy metals they tend to be very strongly bound in the soil on organic matter. Therefore, you can end up polluting your soil to the point that you know you have a soil that's on which you cannot grow crops because the roots wouldn't develop as as well, etc. But still, on this soil, you wouldn't have you know impacts on human health because the transfer would be very limited. And 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 I guess that, that that's the point of my paper. What I'm saying is that everybody is going crazy about enhanced weathering, and I'm very enthusiastic also about it. You know, we've launched we've launched a field a field study two years ago about it, and 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 we're finding some really exciting results. But there is one point that has that was never mentioned, and it's the risk of reaching very high levels of heavy metal concentrations in the soil. To the point that these concentrations would would go beyond the regular regulatory limits set by the countries in terms of soil pollution. So it could be it could be a problem from a regulation those, point of view. Sorry, but are those regulatory limits sensible, or are they just superly cautious, far beyond what's needed? Yeah, that, that's uh, that's point that I'm raising in the paper also. The, the heavy metal accumulation related with basalt applications. So basalt it's another it's another rock another silicate rock. So your your internet connection dropped off there, so you'll have to repeat that just last 10 seconds. Yeah. Are you here? Yeah I'm here. Yeah okay sorry I don't know what I what was I saying? Yeah. So basically basically when we 
when we model the, the heavy metal accumulation with basalt with basalt application, we see that the most problematic heavy element is copper. Right. So we end up with a very important copper accumulation in soil, to the point that an entweathering couldn't be sustained more than one or two decades before we would reach regulatory limits in uh, in the world. Okay, and why is why is enhanced weathering worse than normal volcanic soils? I mean, if if volcanic soils have this material in them, then surely every soil that's near a volcano would be at or exceeding these regulatory limits. Yeah, and they do, and they do. So are we now not elite allowed to eat anything that's grown on a volcano, or what? Well, yeah. The key, the central message of the paper was that there is one aspect that wasn't taken into account, and it's the regulation aspect of it. Now. Is it a problem if we cross, you know, regulation limits? Now that's that's a, that's a much broader subject, right? What I'm, is being broadcasted for the, for now as as a potential really strong solution against climate change? Well, there is one aspect that we need to take into account, and it's the potential risk of infringing most most you know soil pollution limits in the world. Now, is is this infringement a problem for our health? Well, this is a de- debate to be led with you know much more expert people than I am and, and 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 I'm talking about you know doctors ecotoxicologists people like this but sure if, we, sort of, if we I trust mean, a little bit you know regulators in the limits that they have set for you know for what they considered soil polluted a polluted soil well then clearly we have a problem here okay well project carb down use cotton so how much of the world's agricultural crops do we need I mean I've seen anything that goes into the food chain would need to be addressed so you couldn't for example just use a fodder crop like um oil seed rape that humans don't tend to eat as much of and they they tend to be an important contributor to um uh, to the fodder um uh budget for the world uh, so what what about or am i wrong in that i mean do the cows excrete nickel effectively to the point that they can be fed high nickel crops and they'll just get rid of it yeah no you're you're right you're right that's a, that's another aspect. So, you know, any any organic amendment like like slurry, for example, is very rich in uh, problematic elements like uh, like nickel and yeah, like like nickel. So 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 yeah. So, um, so do we know? But do we know like if if we've got because if we've got something like cotton or flax or whatever that's a fiber crop, it's not a eating crop. You don't sit down and have a load of cotton for your tin, dinner, do you? You you just use cotton as a as a clothing product, right? And so you've got you've got products like that, fiber crops, and then you've got crops that are fodder crops, like things like soy and um, canola that get fed in large amounts to cattle. And you might be a bit less concerned about the effect on cow health as you are on human health. So what I'm trying to work out is can we mitigate this issue by concentrating on feeding fodder, on treating soil yeah. that's used for fodder crops rather than treating soil yeah. that's used for... You know what? I should I should have had this this discussion with you before writing the paper because clearly this is a this is a great idea that I would have loved to 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 insert in, in the in the discussion part of the paper. You're right. Yeah, De- definitely, definitely. I guess we could we could address this aspect by growing specific crops. I wouldn't go for fodder crops at all because because what you would end up is you would basically end up with uh, polluting your soil again when you reapply you know all the slurry and and you know waste from the from the animals so things like cotton yeah yeah that's that, that's that's clever 
definitely. Yeah, that, that's a good idea. Okay, well, that's not my idea. I'm not claiming credit for that. It's Project Carb Down are using uh, uh, cotton for right. their experiments because they want to um, get rid of this um, of this issue with the human toxicity effects, right? So <laughs> that's why they've decided to use it, as I understand, because it, it means that it just takes that dimension out. I mean, it's not, you know, it's not like, cotton toxicity doesn't have an effect but it's not so serious that yep. you are going to end up with um uh you know people kind of ending up with skin blisters or whatever from using cotton that's been thrown on an enhanced weathering soil right i mean if that if that was possible we'd probably have known about it already right because we're not doing anything that soils don't do naturally we're just doing a bit more of it right so uh, so what i'm trying to understand here is like got got a phytotoxic effect right and then so the plants don't like it and they don't grow or die or whatever. And so that's a kind of bad thing that happens if you do this. So are there any other effects? We, we don't know about the human health effect and we can kind of reduce the human health concerns by using non-consumption crops, potentially, right? Yeah. But from what you were saying earlier, the key thing to take away here is that this trade-off isn't really it's not negotiable. You can't just look around until you find a better rock. It's pretty fundamental to the chemistry that if you're going to have quick weathering, you've got to put up with the um, the fact that you're going to have quite a lot of chrome and nickel, right? Yeah. Well, chromium and nickel is is a famous example because because it was the, it was the first there were the first elements that were pointed out by scientists when they talked about enhanced weathering. At first, they wanted to to use olivine-rich minerals like dunite, for example. Uh, okay. And then they quickly realized that you know they had problematic, they had a problem with with nickel and chromium, and therefore they moved on. They moved from saying they moved from from this from these rocks to rocks that were considered safe. And these rocks are basalts, right? Basalts are basically. But from what you're saying is that the amount of weathering benefit you get is pretty much proportional to the amount of chrome and nickel. So if you go to rocks that weather more slowly, but you still want them, the overall weathering effect the same because you still want to get rid of the same amount of CO2, don't you just end up going around in circles? So you just end up reduce your weathering rate, but you have to apply more rock. And therefore, when the more rock weathers, you end up with just as much chrome and nickel because to get a certain amount of weathering, you have to have a certain amount of chrome and nickel, or am I misunderstanding something here? No, 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 no. You're not misunderstanding it. What I was just trying to do is I was trying to explain you the history behind, you know, behind enhanced weathering in, in the sense that the very first studies about it, I mean, or papers about it, con- were considering this, this heavy metal rich rocks because they were the fastest to, to dissolve. And then we had papers saying, okay, clearly these rocks you know, are not safe to use, to be used, at least on soils, right? Because we can we can talk about ocean and then weathering where they use these rocks and, like and the Yeah. But do this and, and uh, from what I've understood the, the preliminary results are very interesting in terms of uh, of heavy metal pollution because the dilution effect of ocean is so huge that you that pretty much you don't care, right? But for soils, they moved from olivine rich to rocks that were dissolving slower, but were also considered safe because they had less heavy metals in them. And these rocks were, were all the basalts. And basalts are the rocks being considered now in pretty much all the enhanced rock weathering studies as, you know, the safe candidate. And my paper is about basalts, right? Because 
when I, I modeled the heavy metal accumulation that you know basalts contain, right? Basalts contain some some heavy metals, and we we spoke about the chromium and nickel. Nickel is a problem, but copper copper is a, is even more a problem in in basalts. Then what we discovered was that well, we we would still have heavy metal accumulation in soils even with this rock basalts that was considered safe until now. Okay. Going back to my fundamental point, that Sorry. It, from what you were saying earlier, it seems like your weathering rate is pro- roughly proportional to the amount of gunk that you've got in these rocks, right? So yes. if you want faster weathering, you have a more gunky rock. If you want slower weathering, you can have a less gunky rock, but you'll have to use more rock. So that doesn't it just get you back to exactly where you started? I mean, yes. like, isn't, it, isn't it just a more fundamental problem? Yes, you're right. You're right. And okay, I just wanted to explain you the history behind it, but sorry, I forgot your first point. This is very right. And and this was already pointed out by a paper from Vika. Uh, Star, Sarah Vika. Is that right? Sarah Vika. Yeah. She, yeah we she, haven't had her on the podcast, but I do know who she is. Yeah. So, quite, quite young, isn't she? She's like a younger scientist. Uh, I've never met her in person, to be honest. I just uh, I remember seeing her on social media. I've seen her picture on social media. So. Okay. So, right. You know, and ba- not, basically, was she's not got a grey beard either so okay well um yeah in, in her paper she was she was she was comparing you know the weathering of different basalts and she what she, what she basically discovered is exactly what you said which was the fastest basalt to weather was the basalt that had the most problematic you know elements in it so this is a question that we cannot get out i guess one okay you mentioned the type of crops that we could grow there is another Another solution to mitigate this aspect, and it and this would be to choose a soil that is already quite pure in terms of heavy metal pollution, so that we would have more time to use it before it's a problem both for plants and potentially for us. Okay, so you're picking on the weak, right? Sorry, you're picking on the weak. I mean, surely an alternative aspect of that argument is to say, well, we want to pick the soils that are already most polluted because relatively speaking it's going to make less difference right so if you've got a a soil let's say for example you've got a ton of nickel per hectare and then you add you know several kilos of nickel per hectare you're not making as much difference to the soil profile as you would in a more sort of pristine soil so couldn't you just reverse your argument directly and say well actually want the dirty the dirtiest soil and the other the other aspect of that is that the the plants that grow on those dirtier soils potentially well, they, yeah, they might be varieties that are less prone to damage from it. I mean, I'm not saying that that's right. I'm just saying that it doesn't seem to be. Your argument seems sensible, but equally, it seems yeah. sort of sensible to make the exact opposite argument, right? You're, you're, I mean, you're right. Yeah, I never thought about it, but, but you're right. Yeah, I guess we could make the opposite argument. Now, the question is, you know, where where do we find such polluted soils? Because in most near volcanoes, I'd imagine, right? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so. What's your verdict? Yeah, would you say that we should go for more or less polluted soils? The problem is that, you know, as you said about volcanic soils, you know, although they contain this, you know, this this problematic heavy metals, you know, they've also been attracting, you know, civilizations because they were so fertile, right? And yeah. and that's one aspect about an an rock weathering is that okay, okay, now here we're talking about a problem, which is you know, the potential accumulation of heavy metals in the soil. But adding these these minerals 
do not only release you know problematic elements you know they you know these 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 minerals when they when they dissolve in the solution they also release some some potentially key nutrients like you know potassium or calcium or phosphorus and just like in the tropics you know where these elements have been lost choosing the right conditions to apply the okay it could be either the cleanest soils or the most polluted soils as you said but you would also have you know several other aspects to take into account and I, and the fertility gain that you still have from it is undeniable it's it's huge it's huge i'm not okay. bashing and weathering you know i'm just saying there is one regulatory problems that we have not taken into account and addressed now so what so why are the why would why are the regulators set these limits then? i mean what what's the logic for the regulators setting limits at all for these kind of materials is there invite invite them on your podcast because i would listen to this to this podcast uh, i would be the first listener that's for sure okay you might be the last as well so you've got to be careful of that so well, yeah, if you can recommend a regulator to talk to about enhanced weathering, we might consider having them on. But they don't write many papers, I'd imagine, so it'd be a bit weird. But anyway, okay, so you've highlighted that this is an issue. What are we supposed to do about it other than have conversations with regulators, which appears to be the main thing that you're suggesting? So so, <laughs> that's, so, so, what can we do about this? Well, the first thing could be maybe this, this regulation limits are not relevant. You know, Maybe, maybe they don't make sense. And actually, some countries have already started to include exceptions for enhanced weathering applications. Germany, okay. for example, has an eco limit in the soil. I hope I'm not saying a mistake here. I think I think the, the regulation limits in the soil is 80 ppm. And if unless unless you 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 apply rock powder for enhanced rock weathering, and in this case, it's 100 ppm for okay. nickel. They give you a bit of leeway if you're doing yeah. Things, and, right? and, and why do they do this? Well, basically, they do this because because they they consider that the, the heavy metals in the minerals will either be in minerals well will be very strongly attached after to the to the organic matter, uh, or they will be contained in minerals that are not so fast at weathering. We spoke about olivine, right? But olivine are not the only problematic minerals. Some other minerals, which are much slower to dissolve, also contain other problematic elements, like oxides, for example. They also contain the problematic elements, but we know that they take much, much, much longer to dissolve. And therefore, okay, they will... Is this a fundamental trade-off? You're basically saying that your weathering rate is proportional to the amount of gunk that comes out of the rock. Or, well, or do I just misunderstand that? Or is that not yet known? It was the, I mean, it's the case when we speak about olivine, right? When we speak about olivine, it's a linear uh, pollution that comes out of, of, of olivine is a linear effect of how much olivine you, you, you have in your mineral. For example, basalts themselves, although they're, you know, they're considered safe compared to, you know, olivine-rich minerals, they, they can still contain up to 20 or 25% of olivine. So, so, so for olivine, yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a linear effect. You know, you you understood that clearly. But there are also you know, there are also other minerals that that contain heavy metals, and these ones are not fast to weather, so they're not a problem in terms of of water pollution or in terms of you know of crop pollution. It will still lead to an overall increase in terms of heavy metal concentration if you're in your soil. 
Okay. So is there any kind of meaningful ratio? Well, well, let me let me explain this in a in in another way. So, is there any meaningful way of saying that you know per kilo of carbon dioxide removed, you get you know x grams of pollution out of a certain type of rock, or is it is that or is it always going to be the same number for whatever type of rock you deal with? Um, if is you it just look, inherent, yeah. If you look at the amount of CO two that is removed, yes, it's linear because the amount of CO two that is being removed will mainly depend on the fastest minerals to, to weather. So yes, it's okay. linear, and yes, we could, we could calculate this. I've never done it, and I don't think I've ever seen it anywhere, but that would be very interesting to calculate, yeah. Well, there you go. There's a paper. You can cite me as a co-author, as a kind yeah. of gift co-authorship for, uh, for my assistance with you on Reviewer 2. There you go. Mm-hmm. So, right. What I mean, I'm not sure whether we've covered 20% of your paper or 100% of your paper or what. So you've you've highlighted this problem. What are you actually measuring and testing? Were you analyzing all this from first principles or going and doing farm studies or what? Yeah. So so what we did is that we calculated the average uh, concentrations of heavy metals in basalts themselves. So what we we extracted these concentrations from a GeoRock database, which is a database um, that gathers all the rock analysis, I mean, most, most of the rock analysis conducted throughout the world. We, we calculated the mean concentrations for basalts, and then we modeled how much, you know, how much of heavy metals would, be, would, be, would accumulate in soils, depending on several hypotheses. We had three scenarios. That's not very interesting to talk about. But basically, the idea was to, to model this, this, the accumulation and to see at, after how many years the national regulation limits would be crossed. So okay. we took uh, we took Germany, we took Russia, we took China, we took Brazil and Canada, because um, this might be surprising, but the United States do not have any uh, limits for soil pollution in terms of heavy metals, and the United the European Union are still working on them. So so add these two these these two countries, and uh, and what we saw we would breach the first limit for copper after six years of enhanced rock weathering uh, operation and uh, for nickel it would be it would be the first limit would be reached after 10 years okay so you've got you know the better part of a decade for whichever chemical that you're monitoring for but what happens after that does that i mean do you just abandon the farm and leave it for a thousand years the fence around it or do you plant a phytoremediation crop and then bury yeah. that crop when it's absorbed it's- all the nickel and cleaned it up or for example for copper so, so for copper, we we what we calculated was that yet. So that so the first the first limit would be reached after six years. Most copper limits are actually quite low, especially when you look at you know vineyards. You know, you know, in vineyards they use a lot of uh, of copper as a as a as a fungicide. And uh, I did. And so, you say okay. you know. I certainly did not know that. Thank you oh, for informing okay, me. Okay, you didn't know. It's a uh, okay. It's a very common. Common fungicide, and it it, it it was it used to be it used to be the main one, and now now it's mainly used in organic vineyards, but it's still central to to fight against against fungi. So organic, in, in so organic vineyards use just different fungicides. Why can't they use? What's the, I mean, surely they. I think most people assume that you can't use any fungicides, and that's what makes it organic. Are you saying that you can? All right. So here we're moving towards a totally different subject, but I'm happy to talk about organic versus conventional farming. Well, it makes a difference because, I mean, you're 
I mean, like, it's not completely off topic, is it? Because, I mean, if 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 there are differences between the organic and conventional farming regimes that affect the mineral profile of the soil, then you know it's it's well within the boundary of what people I think are going to want to know about your paper, right? Um, most people think that in organic farming, you're not allowed to use any pesticides, and it's actually quite wrong. In organic farming, you're not allowed to use any pesticides derived from fossil products, from synthesis products. Well, that's weird. Uh, like, why is that? Why, why is that rule set? I mean, the origin of the chemical. So, for example, you could make, you know, yeah. you can make, uh, you can use the Lanzatec process to make something approximate to jet fuel, and then turn that into fertilizer, or um, yeah. turn that into a pesticide. So, why does the origin of the material make any difference? That just seems really just a really bizarre way of setting a restriction, right? The reason why it was it was decided like this was because most of these pesticides were were penetrating the, the product. They were penetrating the plant. They were penetrating the crop, and therefore you would end up ingesting it. Whereas if you use products like I mean pesticides like like rock powder containing copper, so so for example um, uh, copper yeah co- copper and sulf and sulfur the the product covers the crop in the case of vineyards it covers the grapes but it doesn't it doesn't enter the grapes so it protects the grapes from being attacked by fungi but when it rains yeah. or when you when you wash your product you basically do not ingest it so i guess this is why this is why in organic farming they they still allow pesticides but it's just not not synthetic pesticides okay that makes some sense right so you're saying that things that go into the body of the crop that you eat are not allowed i mean i don't really want to eat pesticides so i'm sure most people don't either so um they're not designed to be eaten are they i mean well they're kind of designed to be eaten, but it's incidental they're not they're not like a food improver they're just for the agricultural element and so the minimum that you eat is the better right uh, fine. So, okay. so to, to go back to, to, to my initial point the at the moment the copper limits in for most countries are set at a, at a certain level let's say it's between 80 and what and 120 ppm of copper in your soil okay now we know that in some soils especially in vineyard soils we know that the copper levels can be you know 10 to 100 times higher than this these soils can still grow something right they can grow they can grow you know vines so when you say okay what do we do with this now you know what happens when when the limit is crossed well it's it's a complex subject because clearly we know that you know these limits you know they're not set in gold, and and you know the, the soil doesn't start to take on fire once this limit is is crossed. It's a problem of of uh, of what you grow and uh, and yeah and and how you use this soil, pretty much. Okay, so the limits are um, a bit more flexible than people might imagine. That's one of the key yeah. takeaways. And you're also saying that you're you provided a sort of numerical understanding of when the limits are breached. That's one of the other takeaways of your study. And the answer is soon, like soon enough to be a problem, but not that soon. You know, not it's not tomorrow, it's like a decade or so. So you can get away with the enhanced weathering from let's assume that we did decide to stick to the limit. I mean, do we have enough cropland in the world to do enhanced weathering for a few years to make a big difference? Or does that basically make the whole thing a bit pointless because you can't do it for long enough for it to be worthwhile? How does that work? So the most optimi- op- optimistic calculations for in terms of CO2 sequestrations estimated that, you know, one year of global application on, on soils, like through all over the world, you know, would, would sequester the equivalent of pretty much 25% of, uh, of our CO2 emissions. Okay? For one so year we, or forever? 
No, no, one year, one year. So, okay. So basically in any one year, we can get rid of 25% of our emissions of CO2 for that year by doing enhanced weather on a farm lab, right? Yes. And I mean, that's and, uh, not that much because like, you know, we've got a hundred years to catch up on or so of fairly hardcore emissions. That's why most scientists model enhanced weathering as an annual application. And they, they say okay. that, okay, we need to apply this rock dust. But taking your numbers there, right? So you're saying that you, like, even if we did it globally, we'll only get rid of 25% of the total emissions from one year. That's, I mean, doing it globally is a fairly hefty thing to do anyway, right? Yeah, yeah. It raises, then, it raises other central questions like, like how to how to mine all this rock, all the needed rock. How to if we can only do it for six to ten years, if we we breach all these limits. Then you know that adds up to like one or two years of climate change. That's not really going to solve climate change, is it? I was looking for an easy panacea. Damn. Well, yeah, easy solutions are uh, are hard to find. Yeah, that's um that's that's one of the problems. Well, you're not um, good, then are you? Why have we got you on a podcast? We want people to solve problems, not people to talk about them. So, um, but even so, you're saying within ten years we can probably get like two and a half years. Even if we did it globally, we get two and a half years or so of emissions undone. Yeah. And there is actually literally a company called Undo that operates in this space. Now I chat to them. I went to a, a farmers show the other day for commercial reasons, basically, and um, stumbled across Undo at this uh, farming workshop thingy. Although to be fair, I think I actually did go to see partly at least to see undo and see what they're up to but i ended up being a lot more commercially useful than it was for my science but hey that's another story just correcting myself there so um so we can undo a bit of uh global warming with this enhanced weather and malarkey but we can't undo an enormous amount right there's a well so okay let, let me let me develop my argument because because okay we went through a few questions here but what i wanted to say was that for the most op- optimistic you know, calculations mentioned, you know, up to 25% of the CO2 emissions. Now, now this is only if we take into account the CO2 sequestration, which is directly linked to the weathering of silicates. Okay, what we've been talking up to now. There is, there is another potential aspect about it, which is that because, you know, enhanced weathering will also release key nutrients, it could boost productivity and therefore plant growth, photosynthesis, and CO2 sequestration in the form of organic matter, so organic carbon this time. But that temporary effect, right? You can't keep doing that forever, can you? That's a temporary effect also. I mean, if you're looking for a magical bullet here, you're We're not always looking find for one. magic bullets. So, the, so it's a temporary effect in that the soil will... Does the soil saturate, or do you just end up with a point where there's lots of these additional minerals in the soil, and so adding more doesn't make any difference, which is the, which is the saturation effect that prevents that from being scalable, as it were? Um, yeah. If you, if you talk about uh, saturation in terms of organic matter, yeah, it does. It does saturate after, depending on... Well, no, on... I'm talking about the minerals. So in terms of the, the difference that the minerals make to the organic matter, what, what is the saturation effect? Is it, is, it, is it that adding extra minerals stops making a difference to your, to your plants, or is it you can't add any more because it's not safe? What, what happens? Because what, you're adding some things that the plants like and some things that the plant hates. So what, what is it that becomes the limiting factor in that situation is that the things that are good no longer make a difference because you've already got too much of them, right? It's like if you're thirsty, you want a glass of water, but you don't want a swimming pool full of water because you can't drink it, right? So, mm-hmm. Or is it uh, that eventually all the good stuff gets caught up and the, 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 the bad stuff ends up causing you so many problems that extra good stuff isn't worth it? What, which of those two effects is it? 
I wish there was one of one of these two effects. I'm afraid it's it's more complex. And uh, and and I'm and, and to be honest, I'm not sure that this is a question that has been clearly resolved. There was this paper from Killand? Maybe you, you've uh, you've interviewed him. Oh, Danny, we have. No, okay. He works with the uh, you know Berling in in Berling's team. Uh, in in name doesn't ring a bell. Okay, 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 fair enough. And and uh, if I remember well, he, he studied Sorgo, Sorgo, and and. Uh, and, and calculated that most of the CO2 sequestration would actually end up from uh, better sorghum. And yeah, he calculated that, that most of the sequestration would come up from gain in plant rather than the silicate dissolution. Okay, so it's a mainly an organic carbon effect rather than inorganic carbon effect, or potentially mainly an, an organic carbon effect. That's really cool. I hadn't thought about that. I mean, yeah, undo do sell to farmers based on you know crop yield and agronomy performance but i didn't realize that it was the that it could be the dominant co2 effect i always thought that that was you know quite minor compared to the mineralization and you know what let me confuse you a bit more You're just bullying I, me now no i'm not adding adding rock dust <laughs> I'm easily confused could, no no come on <laughs> adding rock dust could actually end up releasing co2 How? Uh, and th- and this is something that i was i was a uh, received an email to, to review your paper, but I didn't have the time. So, so I rejected it, but I only read the abstract. So I'm not going to say much about it. But, but what, they, what they measured was that in, in soils where, you know, dense weathering was, conduct, was added, they were monitoring a higher CO2 respiration. And why so? Because when you, when you add all the key nutrients in the soil, plus we, we didn't speak about this, right? But when you add rock dust, you tend to increase slightly the pH of your soil. There is a liming effect, like yeah. like when you add. That's one of the reasons that the farmers might right? Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, the thing is, when you increase the pH plus when you add key nutrients, you also increase, the, you know, the the microorganism activity, which in turn increases the rate at which potentially these microorganisms decompose organic matter and release it into CO2. This is something we have no idea about. This is something that has currently not been studied. But if the if this paper comes out, if if it's you know if it's solid. Uh, so this we, is one that we, you've reviewed, is that right? No, I didn't review it. I just read the abstract. And this abstract okay, was, right. was you know was mentioning this aspect. Okay. So so I just want to say that your questions are, are, are relevant and 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 obviously you, you want some clear answers. The true thing is that we're we're at the very beginning of studying all this, and and the answers might be complex and and sometimes even negative in terms of CO two sequestration. Okay, well we don't like that. We like panaceas, no. easy answers, okay. cost effective <laughs> solutions, good headline grabbing stuff. Yeah, I'm afraid that your chances of acceptance are now very low. You work harder to try and give us I... the easy answers that we want. <laughs> So is that covered uh, everything that you wanted to go through? So just to summarize what I think you've told me, the, nick- the limits for nickel and copper and chromium are somewhat arbitrary. We're not quite sure whether they've been set based on good science or just what's common locally. They need to be discussed in terms of enhanced weathering because I'm not, I'm not an ecotoxicologist, but that's a subject that needs to be discussed. And I don't want to say that they are arbitrary. Clearly, I'm. I mean, who am I to? Well, to they, this? well, they need more. They need more work to define whether they are set correctly, right? And it looks like that obeying, if we were to obey these limits, which 
we may or may not decide to do, but if we were to obey them, then it's likely that we'll breach the limits of what the soil can tolerate within about six to ten years. Or the first limits, the first and there may be yeah, there may be other limits that are that are harder to breach, and we've got a bit more leeway yeah. with them. Yeah, correct. And um, we've also got some complexities, you know, not necessarily revealed by your own work, but revealed by other people's work who note that there's some really complex interactions between the soil mineralization and the um, the organic carbon component of soil. And just because we've got the weathering occurring doesn't mean we can guarantee that the whole soil system as a whole is actually net negative. It might be net positive because it the enhanced weathering material feeds the bugs and makes them eat the soil um, organic carbon more quickly, respiring it, and then that goes back into the atmosphere. So quite a yeah. lot to worry about, quite a lot of complexities to think about. And then when it comes to remediation, you haven't really given as much detail on remediation, and I'd like to understand that a bit. So let's assume that I've mapped my farm by putting too much um, uh, nickel or chrome or whatever on the farm, and then I've ruined it, right? So what do I do then? Do I just have to wait for a 1,000 years, or do I grow some weird plant that likes nickel and then use phytoremediation, or how does it, how does it work? Yeah, phytoremediation is is one uh, is one possibility. I'm not an expert into this, so I don't want to say any, anything stupid about this. But yeah, it's I'll say some stupid things about phytoremediation. So basically, phytoremediation is when you're using a plant which has got a particular affinity for whatever you don't want in the soil or whatever you do want to recover from the soil. So let's say you could use it in two ways. So you can either use it to clean up your soil because whatever you've got isn't of any particular value, but it's horrible and you don't like it and you want to get rid of it, right? That's one way of using phytoremediation. The other approach that you can take is phytomining. So you take a soil which has got like a reasonable concentration of material, but for whatever reason, it isn't quite enough to use as an ore in and of itself. And then you grow your daisies or whatever it happens to be on that soil. And then you harvest your daisies and they're full of, you know, gold or whatever it is that you happen to want that wheat because it's, expensive and people pay a lot of money for it and so your daisies then become a crucial part of your mine solution because you might for example dig up ore from your mine crush it put it on the field plant some daisies on it and then the daisies might be more effective at removing whatever you want from the crushed ore than your clever fancy pants bit of equipment that you've paid a bazillion dollars for in your mine and so you use the daisies instead because they do a better job or they're cheaper or they're less hassle or you don't have to have as many people operating daisies as you do operating your fancy pants machine. That, that's fundamentally what phytoremediation or phytomining does, right? Yeah. Is that correct? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah that's a, that's a okay. good summary. Mm -hmm. So do we, know anything about, do we know anything about what we can do with these uh, different... Well, uh, did so. Yeah, like in so, terms so, of pra yeah. practical terms with... Uh, like so, so in, in, pra in practical terms... There are several things you can do. Is first of all, let's 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 say we go from the softest to to the to the most extreme option. Say the first thing that that is possible to do is to to adapt. So therefore, you either select crops that you know are happy to grow in a soil in a soil that is especially polluted in copper or in or in nickel, for instance. So you might start with say wheat, and then you go into cotton once you've ruined your soil, right? For instance, exactly. The other option is to limit the usage of the soil itself. So, for example, okay, it's not be, it's going to be it's not going to be able to grow food anymore, but it's it can be you know can be fine as a as a park or or as a you know or anything anything else. 
that doesn't need you know any consumption in the end then then if we if we if we move on to actually trying to solve the problem you've talked about phytoremediation that's one aspect but there are all other technologies to to clean up the soil you can you can actually well, what, remove what about solubility i mean like one would imagine if the if the, mat- the materials are toxic they have to be mobile ions right they're not just going to be toxic if they're sitting in the soil doing absolutely nothing okay so what what happens when you've got um rainfall on the soil do they naturally just wash out or what yeah we, t- we took that into account but the problem is that the most of these elements are very highly attached on on um, on on the minerals organs, right that's right yeah they they absorbed very highly on the organic matter and and oxides so so even even in uh, under high rainfall regimes they would still the vast, the very vast majority of these elements would still remain in the soil. One way to to change this is to change the pH of your soil towards very acidic soils. Like if you look at geochemistry, you you can see that the mobility of the of the elements tends to increase when you when you go towards um, very acidic soils. But uh, you know, I mean, acidifying your soil to remove heavy metals doesn't really seem like a clever option at all it's counterproductive as well because like that acid will get rid of a lot of the alkalinity in the soils right so you know yeah, CO2 removal has been described as an acid disposal problem by some people so you know you're not helping yourself dispose of acid by having a requirement to acidify the soil unless it's happening on the long term naturally with the carbonic right. acid in the in the rainfall i mean like could yeah. you could you scrape the top layer of soil and yeah, then um, yeah some people uh, do this some some okay. people do this for for the for the most polluted soils. What you end up doing is you actually scrape the first thirty centimeters, sometimes the first meter, sometimes the first two meters of soils, and then you 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 tend. To, I mean, either you just dump it, and some people so do Chernobyl that. style, right? Taking this horrible polluted soil that's harmful and bad, and you're just dumping it, burying the soil, right? That's uh, at least uh, the point. Yeah, which example do you say? Sorry, I didn't hear. Chernobyl, the nuclear power station, that blew up. Ah. So, so the Russians, when the Russians invaded Ukraine, they um, a lot of the people around the nuclear power station got radiation sickness because they dug up this old contaminated soil that was really, really radioactive, right. and they ended yeah. up um, sp- basically spending time sitting in trenches, dug into deep huh. radioactive soil. Right, so they. Managed to cause themselves quite, I think, quite a lot of them. I don't know whether anybody died from it, but there were quite a lot of people who got quite sick from it. Oh, okay. so they were subjected to a lot of radiation from the soil. So I imagine that interesting. You could have potentially a, an intergenerational ground contamination problem. Yeah, from, I mean, um, that, from having this nickel buried in the soil, right? That's one option. I mean, so 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 burying it, dumping it is is what is 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 the most extreme option. Yeah. Some some. Technologies exist to actually tend to clean a soil. Is that called chelation? Do you yeah. put materials into the soil that deliberately bind to the nickel? That's right. They, do they isolate the nickel? Is that the outcome? They just isolate so, it in the soil, so it's there, but it doesn't do anything. Or are they actually no, looking no, to physically no, to, remove it? No, to the contrary. To the contrary, they uh, so so chelate, right? You say chelate. Is it? Yeah, chelation. I think is the process okay. you're. Okay. I'm so, not sure whether I've got that right or not. Chelation is the process, but the actual molecule is uh, either called chelate or chelate. Chelate, I don't know. Anyway, it's yeah. a molecule can bind an element with two with two bonds, and and 
it's, it does that so strongly that it will basically remove the element that is you know, previously bound to, to anything else and put it into solution. So therefore, when you leach, you know, when you leach the soil solution after the chelation process, you you end up collecting the the heavy metals you wanted to clean your soil from. So like when you're at a teenage party and you stayed out too late, your mum comes and drags you out by your ear, says, I told you to be home by 10 30 and you're not home. So I've come to Danny's house to pick you up. And uh, it's a it's a kind of molecular equivalent of that, right? <laughs> uh, if you want, if you want. Okay, fair enough. I like your metaphors. You you're uh, you seem to be an endless source of metaphors. I am certainly an endless source of metaphors. Yeah. So, okay, fine. So you can chelate it. I mean, and can then, you not? And then add, can you not add that chelating agent to the rock dust when you put it on, so that you don't have to go through that second step? Is it not possible to do that? No, no, it's not because because at this at this step the the element is within the mineral matrix. Yeah, but can you not put the chelating agent? Is a single application process so that the chelating agent stays in the soil until it's needed, and then it will kind of wake up, bind to the mineral, and then drag it out into solution and end up in the ocean. Yeah. Or, or would the chelation agent just break down before that actually happened? Well, if you were if you were to do this, the elements would would end up in the groundwater before being in the in the, in the ocean, and this is something you don't want, right? You don't want to heavily pollute, you know, your tap water into heavy metals. Well, I suppose that depends on where on where the water flows to, right? If it flows out into the ocean, you know, unless you're unless you're recovering it for drinking water, it doesn't really matter. There's a lot of groundwater well, that isn't. Okay, I, okay, yeah, maybe in some very specific locations, we where we know that the water directly goes to the ocean and and is never and you know and there is no groundwater being used to drink. I guess maybe this could be a possibility, but you know. In most of the world where people grow food, they, they also need to drink, right? Sometimes people's drinking water sources are not groundwater. There might be deep aquifers or it might be desalination plants or a variety yeah. of different sources for water. So yeah, can't yeah. guarantee it all coming from one place. Yeah. Okay, right. Fine. Well, so we've, we've gone into a bit of detail about um, how you could remediate soils. I'm not quite clear on the chelation agents. Can you give an example of what they are? An example of what these chelation agents chelation agents consist of because i'm not quite clear on what what is and isn't a chelation agent basically it's a yeah it's a, most of them are organic molecules so it's a uh, for example have you have you heard of C, uh, how to say this in english siderophores siderophores yeah i don't know what they are but i know the well, word basically what they are is they are uh, chelation agents for iron so they are organic molecules able to bind to iron in the solution and make it and make it available in the solution. Chelation agents are basically molecules. They're, they're molecules with basically two arms, two li- two little arms, at two least ligands two arms. To bind two, two ligands. Yeah, yeah. So even more than two. Bidentate, so to give it its proper name, it's a bidentate ligand, right? Yeah, it's a bidentate ligand, but sometimes it's even more than two ligands. It's sometimes it's three, four, but yeah, at least at least two. To unbind the element from where it's bound, and then you know, yeah, bring it into solution. Okay, fine, right. Well, I think we've covered everything that you might need to discuss. Is there anything else you want to say in your defence before we no br- uh, brutally summarise your paper? Um, I think that, I think that was quite quite long already. No, um, I don't know how you other podcasts but podcasts long. Are, but we can yeah. go on for hours on review too. 
It okay, takes a long okay. time to get me to understand things, so you got away quite lightly, to be honest. Okay, well, um, yeah, I just uh, uh, it was fascinating talking to you, but you didn't have the panacea I was looking for. So, on that wholly unjustified basis, I'm going to reject your paper. Okay. And if you can come back to me when you solved all the problems, and um, particularly these pesky government soil scientists that tell you you can't grow crops on toxic waste dumps which is very spoiled sport of them because uh, that will stop farmers making money and i'm sure it upsets them greatly when they're told that they can't grow crops they want to grow um but um other than that i think you've um covered everything and when you've got a panacea and you've solved all the problems of the world come back and we'll be happy to listen to right, you but right. for now I will. 25 I will. 25 25 of global warming for it per year but only 10 years using all of the crops in the world i mean that that's, the most opti- that's that's the most optimistic. No, no, that's the most optimistic i mean I, I kind of was pinning my hopes on enhanced weathering i thought it was going to save all my allow me to drive around in my ferrari for a few more years but it seems that's not the case i'm going to have to go and get myself a bicycle how sad <laughs> well anyway thank you for coming on and and disabusing of us of our utopian notions of enhanced weathering miserable though that that might have been for me and i'm sure many other people who are hoping that we all get out of jail free this is not going to happen and not at the moment anyway so i will thank you very much for coming on and let you go back being confused about your nationality and continue pretending that you're swiss when in fact you are in fact french so <laughs> thanks for your time thank you thank you andrew thank you so much for your exciting questions Cheers. Goodbye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.